Thank you, Nate. And uh, I'm actually going to start stuff off with a, a children's message this morning. So any kids who would like to come forward uh, can come gather on me on the steps up here, any elementary uh, age kids. It's been a while, I know, since we've done one of these, so sorry for the long break. Um, I wasn't creative enough to come up with a children's message during the Psalms of Ascent, so... <laughs> But today's passage, uh, in just a little bit, uh, we're going to be turning to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the story of the wise men, the Magi. And so I thought I would read you that story out of one of my favorite books, actually. This is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I first uh, actually read this when I was a senior in college, so I came onto it a little late. Um, but it's, uh, I just think it's a beautiful, wonderful book that illustrates a number of the different stories of Scripture. And so I'm going to read uh, the story of Matthew chapter 2 to you all from that. So it's called The King of All Kings. And I'll sort of move the pictures around in a second after I read each one. Far away in the east, three clever men saw a very special star. It was the same star that God had put in the sky when Jesus was born. And they knew it was a sign. A baby king had been born. They had been waiting for this star. They knew it would come. He's here, they shouted, he's here. And I'm sure if you had been there with them, you would have heard them laughing and dancing and singing until the sun came up. At dawn, they packed their camels and wrapped gifts for the baby. They brought their most precious treasures of all, frankincense, gold, and myrrh. Special, sparkly, lovely smelling, gleaming things just right for a king. And there are the three magi, the wise men, looking at the star in the sky. And then down here, you've got the three different gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The three wise men, actually, if you'd met them, you would have thought they were kings because they were so rich and clever and important looking and set off. They rode their camels across endless deserts, up steep, steep mountains, down into deep, deep valleys, through raging rivers, over grassy plains, night and day and day and night, for hours that turned into days, that turned into weeks, that turned into months and months, until they reached Jerusalem. But we'll get to that in a second. I have to show you the pictures first. So that's them traveling across all those different types of landscapes on their long, long journey to Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem was by far the most important city for miles around. And as anyone can tell you, that's where a palace would be, and kings are born in palaces. So that's where they went. But they were in for a surprise. They went to see King Herod. Surely he'd know where this baby was. But he didn't. In fact, he didn't like the sound of a new king. It made him cross. He didn't want anyone to be king except him. But Herod's advisors told the three wise men what was written in their books, what God had said about the baby king. Go to Bethlehem. That's where you'll find him. Suddenly, the star they had seen in the east started moving again, showing them the way. So the three wise men followed the star out of the big city, along the road, into the little town of Bethlehem. They followed the star through the streets of Bethlehem, out of the nice part of town, through the not-so-nice part of town, into the really not-nice part of town, down a little dirt track until it stopped right over a little house. But wait, it wasn't a palace, and there weren't any guards or servants or flags or red carpets or trumpets or anything. Did they get it wrong, or was this what God meant? 
So there you see the wise men following the star from Jerusalem all the way through Bethlehem to that little house. And sure enough, in that little house, there sitting on his mother's knee, they found him, the baby king. The three men knelt before the little king. They took off their rich royal turbans and gleaming golden crowns. They bowed their noble heads to the ground and gave him their sparkling treasures. The journey that had begun so many centuries before had led three wise men here, to a little town, to a little house, to a little child, to the king God had promised David all those years before. But this child was a new kind of king. Though he was the prince of heaven, he had become poor. Though he was the mighty God, he had become a helpless baby. This king hadn't come to be the boss. He had come to be a servant. And there's the wise men with the little king. That's all I'm going to read for today. You can make your way back to your seats. I'm going to have everyone else turn with me to our text for this morning, though. Like I said, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. As I mentioned, it's the story of the Magi, the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We're sort of between sermon series right now here at Ivanrest Church. Like I uh, said, we just wrapped up the Psalms of Ascent, uh, spent quite a long time in those, and uh, next week we're going to be starting a new sermon series looking at what it means to be generous as Christian believers. Um, But today is the first Sunday of Epiphany, and so we're going to be focusing on one of the traditional texts for Epiphany. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and this is what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, wise men, or magi from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So when he had called together the chief priests of the people and the teachers of the law, he asked them where it was that the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem and Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child, and when you find him, report to me so that I too may go to worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, They return to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, uh, the TV show Undercover Boss has kind of an interesting premise. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I'll confess I've never actually watched a whole episode. I'm not really much for reality TV myself. Uh, But I've seen a few clips here and there over the years, and so I think I have a basic understanding of how it works. Um, Pretty much in each episode, uh, a higher up in some company or another goes undercover in order to work at their company. So it's the CEO or an executive or the owner 
of the company. And the producers of the show, they change their name, they give them kind of a makeover so they look different, and then they send them to work at their business as if they're a new employee who's never been there before. And as you can imagine, uh, the experiences of these undercover bosses sort of run the gamut, right? Uh, some of them have really good experiences. You know, for instance, they see the values and goals of their company in action on the ground level. Uh, they meet and get to know some of their employees. In fact, sometimes they even discover kind of a diamond in the rough, a lower level employee who just does their job so well that the undercover boss is inspired and decides this person really ought to have a raise and a promotion. I need to make better use of this person. Other times, though, uh, the experience isn't as good. Uh, the undercover boss sees things that he or she never would have imagined at their company. For instance, employees cutting corners, a, a poor workplace environment, uh, bad customer service, and so on and so forth. And so as a result, they decide that there's a few changes they need to make. As a standard on reality TV, every episode ends with a big reveal. The boss goes back to being uh, the person he or she normally is, and they talk about their experience. And as part of that, they often call in some of those employees that this undercover boss has been working with uh, those last couple of days. Some of them get the promotions and raises that they deserve. Others get other things. Um, as you can imagine, though, all of them are surprised to find out that this person that they've been working with for these last few days is actually their boss. And in the same way, there's a big reveal here in our text for this morning as well, or at least the start of it. You see, there's a child who's been born in a little town in the hill country of Judea. To the average person, there, there isn't probably anything really special or noteworthy about this kid. Uh, he's just another kid in the town of Bethlehem. That is, until one day, when a couple of mysterious visitors from a far off land show up give him some gifts, and even worship him. So starts the unveiling, the reveal, the epiphany of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's actually the name of the church, the season of the church year that we're in right now. It's called Epiphany. We've just come out of two other seasons of the church year, actually. Uh, Advent leads up to Christmas and lasts for four weeks, and it instills in us the Christian values of hope, love, joy, and peace as it gets us ready to celebrate the birth of Christ on Christmas morning. And then Christmas itself is actually considered an entire church season in the church calendar as well, and that's because historically Christmas in the church is more than just a day, it's actually 12 days of Christmas, just like the song says. And so it's actually considered a, a season of the church year all on its own. The idea is that celebrating the birth of the savior of the entire world isn't something that you can compress into just one day, you actually need 12 for it. And so what, for what I'm sure are some very nerdy and theological uh, reasons, the church has long believed that you need that full time of 12 days to celebrate Christmas. So kids, next year on the 26th, just tell your parents, oh no, no, Christmas is not over yet. We've still got 11 more days to keep this thing going. Get some of those turtle doves, French hens, and calling birds. After that, though, after Christmas and its 12 days of celebration comes the next season of the church year, the season we're in now, the season of Epiphany. 
Now, unlike other seasons in the church year, Epiphany doesn't have a set length or time frame, right? We just said that Advent is four weeks. Christmas is 12 days. Uh, Eastertide, the liturgical season that starts with Easter and lasts all the way to Pentecost, is a full 50 days. And right before that, you've got Lent, which is six weeks long, but not Epiphany. Instead, Epiphany is simply the amount of time between the end of Christmas and the beginning of Lent on Ash Wednesday. And since Lent and Easter move around year to year, so does the length and time frame of Epiphany. And so as a result, Christians have historically celebrated Epiphany in all sorts of different ways. Uh, Some celebrate it just on the day that it starts, January 6th, which was this past Thursday. Uh, Some celebrate it like we are today on the first Sunday of Epiphany. And some celebrate it for the entire season, all the way until Lent. Regardless, though, the significance of Epiphany is the same. And that's because for Christians, Epiphany is a season of discovery, of realization, of recognition. As Philip F. Reinders writes about Epiphany in his prayer book, Seeking God's Face, Epiphany is a season celebrating the revelation of the Savior, the light of the world. Epiphany begins on January 6th and is marked by several events and themes in the life of Jesus, the visit of the Magi, the baptism of Jesus, and the wedding feast at Cana. Each event unveils the fuller dimensions of the man we call Jesus. He is the worshipped King of Kings, the dearly loved Son of God, and the miracle-working Lord of the feast. Throughout the Feast of Epiphany, we focus on the ministry of Jesus, the calling of the disciples, the teachings of Christ, his miracles, and finally his transfiguration. As we journey through Epiphany, we catch a sight of the uniqueness of Christ. The Epiphany of Epiphany is that this is no mere teacher or prophet, but this is the Son of God, the Messiah. In other words, Epiphany is the season of the church year where we come to see Jesus not just as a baby in the manger, not just as some kid running the streets of Bethlehem, not just as the firstborn of a peasant girl and her carpenter husband, but instead as so much more. That's because Epiphany is the season of the church year where Jesus is revealed to us as Messiah, the very Son of God, the Savior and redeemer of the world. And it all starts here in this text with a visit from some mysterious magi from the east. Now it's important to note that most of what we think we know about the magi is actually more fiction than fact, okay? That's because the Bible doesn't actually tell us all that much about the Magi. In fact, this text, the Gospel of Matthew, is the only Gospel writer uh, that mentions the Magi. We don't see the Magi in any of the other Gospels. And even what Matthew tells us here is pretty sparse. He doesn't write all that much about the Magi in this text. Uh, for, for instance, we actually have no idea how many Magi there were. Okay? Despite the fact that I just read over and over in the Children's Storybook Bible that there were three, we don't actually know if that's the case. That number, the traditional number of three, is simply based on the amount of gifts they gave. Three gifts, so therefore three magi. One gift for each. That's the only reason why we've traditionally numbered them at three. For all we know, there could have been just two, or there could have been a whole lot more. The same goes for their traditional names of Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. Those traditional names for the magi are just that, tradition. Uh, There's no biblical or historical backing for that. The fact is that their names and identities are lost to history, and we really don't know who they were. 
And there's no way for us to know where they came from either. Some scholars think Persia, some think Afghanistan or India. Talk to Chinese Christians, they'll tell you that the Magi are definitely from China. Um, As we'll see in a bit, based on the gifts they bring, maybe the best argument can be made for Arabia, but again, we don't really know. And nor do we know what they saw in the sky that led them to Jesus. Uh, We have records of Halley's Comet being sighted in 11 BC, but that's almost certainly too early for the Magi to have associated it with Jesus. One of the more interesting proposals I came across in my commentary work was that instead of an actual star, the Magi saw what's called a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the part of the sky known as Pisces. A conjunction is when two objects in the night sky look like they're sort of merging into one. sort of lining up, and as one commentator I read wrote, this happened three times in the year 7 BC. It was seen on 29 May, 3 October, and 4 December in that year. A cuneiform inscription from the observatory in Sippar in Babylonia gives us this fascinating information. And if this is in fact what arrested the attention of these stargazing magi, it's not difficult to see how they would have interpreted it. Pisces was reckoned by astronomers to mark the end of the sun's old course and the beginning of the new. Jupiter was the royal planet, and Saturn had long been the symbol of Israel. So this conjunction of planets, giving the impression of one very bright star, would have meant to the competent astronomer that a new age was beginning in which the sovereignty of the world would shift to Judea. Jerusalem was the capital city of Judea, and it was natural that the Magi should have gone there first. They would have set out after the first conjunction of the planets, and the third would have occurred while they were in Bethlehem. It seemed to be almost overhead and indicated to them that the end of their search was at hand. This is the sort of nerdy stuff that I just find really interesting. I have no idea if you even care about any of that, but when I read it, I was like, that's so cool. Probably the only one. Anyway, other scholars think that the Magi just saw a one-off event in the night sky, something like a nova or a supernova, and then through the work of the Holy Spirit in them, God led them there to Bethlehem. Uh, to, to encounter the Christ child. Regardless, the point is, despite all the legends and myths that have attached themselves to these wise men, to these magi, we actually don't know that much about them. The songs and carols that we sing, you know, We Three Kings, for instance, they're nice. That's one of my favorite Christmas songs, actually. But the fact is that scripture remains silent on everything except the fact that they showed up. And so the Magi will always be shrouded in mystery for us, at least to a degree. That said, there are a few things that we do know about them. First, we know that they're foreigners. These are Gentiles. These are non-Jewish people. Like I said earlier, we don't know exactly where they're from, but we do know that they're not from nearby. A couple of reasons. First, their profession. You see, these magi were almost certainly astrologers. And while the fields of astronomy and astrology are two different disciplines these days, with astronomy being the study of the stars and astrology being the mystical interpretation of their movements, back then those disciplines would have been one and the same. If you were an astronomer, you were an astrologer. And if you were an astrologer, you were an astronomer. But the Jewish people were likely to be neither. And that's because while astrology wasn't explicitly forbidden in the Old Testament, it was definitely frowned upon. No religious Jew of good standing would have practiced astrology. Rather than seeing their lives as as governed by the movements of the stars, the Jewish people believed that their lives were governed by God alone. And so they didn't go seeking answers in the night sky. 
Many other cultures and peoples did though, and so it's likely the Magi came from one of them. That's even more likely because of the fact that when the Magi arrived in Judea, they went to Jerusalem. Just like no good, upstanding, religious Jewish person would have practiced astrology, if they were looking for the Messiah, no good, upstanding, religious Jewish person would have gone to Jerusalem either. Instead, they would have gone to Bethlehem. Because as every Jewish person would have known, that was where the Messiah would eventually be born. And so the fact that the Magi didn't know that is yet another indication that they came from somewhere else, somewhere quite far away. And so are the gifts that they bring to Jesus here. Put simply, the things that the Magi bring to Jesus in this text, especially frankincense and myrrh, are not native to Judea. That's not to say that the Jewish people weren't familiar with them. Frankincense was actually part of the perfume used in the holy place of the temple, and myrrh was one of the ingredients used in the priest's anointing oil. And gold, like today, was both a form of currency as well as something people use for jewelry and decoration. But none of those things were natural products of Palestine. There might have been a bit of gold mining there, but not a lot. But definitely not frankincense and myrrh. They were certainly imports. That's because, as Ken Bailey points out in his contextual commentary, Jesus, through Middle Eastern eyes, frankincense and myrrh are harvested from trees that only grow in southern Arabia, which is why I think maybe that's the best case for where the Magi were from. Either way, it's clear that they're coming to Judea from somewhere else. And that brings us to the second thing we know about the Magi, which is that contrary to how we might typically picture the scene, the Magi would not have been there on the same night that Jesus was born. Sorry to destroy your nativity sets. Okay. Uh, the shepherds were there. Okay, So if you have shepherds in your nativity set, Gospel of Luke gives you that, Okay, but not the Magi. Like we just said, they're not from nearby, right? We don't know exactly where they're from, so we don't know how long their journey would have been, but they would have had a journey to get there. It would have taken them a while, and not just a couple of days either. It could have been weeks or months or maybe, as some commentators think, even years. And Matthew himself actually implies that. After all, in verse 11, when he describes the Magi's arrival, he writes, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. In other words, the stable is gone. Mary and Joseph are in a house now, and Jesus is no longer just an infant. He's actually a child. And so while we don't know how long it's been since Jesus' birth here in Matthew, we do know that at least some time has passed. In other words, it takes a while for the Magi to show up. But when they do, they do something absolutely remarkable. And this is where I think we kind of need to slow down actually for a bit. This is the third thing we know about the Magi, but when they do finally come to Bethlehem in Judea to see Jesus, they come to worship him, okay? Um, I said we need to slow down here. The reason is because this is one of those stories of scripture that we just know so well, right? It becomes part of the Christmas tradition, part of the Christmas story, part of the lore, and so it's easy for us to just sort of skim through a story like this and hurry past the wonder, the beauty, the significance and power of it. But just think about what's going on here for a moment. Like we said, these magi are foreigners, right? They are Gentiles, they are pagan astrologers. Regardless of where they're from, they're clearly not from Judea. We don't know how far they've traveled, but it's taken them a while to get there. And they followed a star, of all things, to lead them there. Can you imagine going on a journey like that? You're outside, you're looking up at the night sky, you see a star, and you decide to start following it. 
That journey becomes that the days bleed into weeks, the weeks bleed into months, maybe even years. You've got to be pretty sure about that, right? You've got to be sure about that star. You've got to be sure about what you think it means to. And yet that's exactly what these magi did. They left their homes, their countries, maybe even a family behind to undertake a journey without a definite destination for an uncertain amount of time to try and find a newly born baby, a child, a young king whose star they believed, they believed they'd seen rise in the east. And when you think about it like that, it's amazing that they even end up finding Jesus, right? But even more surprising is what they proceeded to do when they did, because not only did these magi give Jesus gifts fit for a king, which they did, gold and frankincense and myrrh were the kind of things that you would bring to royalty. And not only did they bow down and give him reverence, which which makes sense to do when you believe that you're in the presence of royalty, but Matthew adds another element, because he says that these magi worshiped Jesus. In other words, these magi who had traveled so far and undertaken so many challenges and so much uncertainty to get there finally arrived in Judea in the little town of Bethlehem at a nondescript and humble house on the outskirts of town where they met Jesus. And there they recognized in him not just a child, not just an eventual ruler or king, not just another earthly authority or leader, but something so much more. And we must too. And that brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, this child that the Magi came upon here in this text isn't just another baby born in Bethlehem. He's not just another kid running the streets and playing with his friends. He's not just another child growing up in the hill country of Judea. Instead, he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the savior and ruler of all things, the redeemer of all creation, the long expected one who God had promised so long ago and who would come to set all the wrong things of the world right. And as such, as the Magi recognize here, he is not just worthy of reverence and respect and gifts. He's worthy of worship too. And he's worthy of our worship. You see, these magi were the first Gentiles to recognize Jesus for who he was. They were the first Gentiles to come to him in reverence and submission. They were the first ones from outside God's people of Israel to see Jesus as Lord and King. But they wouldn't be the last. You see, the the magi refer to Jesus in this text when they come to King Herod as the king of the Jews. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? But this isn't the last time that that title is given to Jesus. Because 30 or so years later, as he hung on a cross, that title would again be given to him. It'd actually be nailed above his head. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. And it's through that through his sacrifice and suffering, through his crucifixion and death, through his atoning for our sin, that he would become so much more than just the king of the Jews. He would become our king too. 
You see, through him, through Christ, the promises of God were made available to all people. The rescue and renewal God had planned from the beginning of time was extended to the whole world, and the salvation he promised to bring was made possible even for us. The Magi were some of the first to recognize it, but we are called to recognize it too. We're called to recognize the true nature of that child in Bethlehem, the unveiling of who he really is, the epiphany of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, through your Holy Spirit, you led those magi so long ago to your son and help them recognize him for who he is. Help us to recognize him too. Not just as a child, not just as a baby born in Bethlehem, but as our Lord and Savior. Thank you for your son. Thank you for giving us a Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.